0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
0: And I'm Holly Fry. Hey, Holly, what did you do this weekend? I went and saw Wonder Woman. Hey, so did I. There might have been a lot of crying. Me
1: too. And I actually started working on this episode before seeing Wonder Woman. It Even so, it feels like we're maybe a little late to this party. But today we're going to talk about Dr. William Moulton Marston, who you may have seen his name in the credits of Wonder Woman. He actually created Wonder Woman in addition to being a Harvard-educated psychologist. He wrote extensively about things like human emotions and consciousness. Uh, He also invented and popularized an early version of the lie detector test. And as we just said, created Wonder Woman. You may have even seen, if you have seen Wonder Woman, a teaser for a forthcoming biopic about him that was apparently going to be called Professor M. So if that piqued your interest, we're going to help out with that today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't get that preview. I didn't know it existed until other people were talking about it on the Internet. And I was like, what?
1: So to return to the subject at hand, for folks who maybe know Wonder Woman as an embodiment of truth and justice and don't have so much knowledge about the comic's earlier years or its creator, uh, the heads up we're about to give you might be a little surprising. There is going to be some sex talk today. As always, it will not be graphic or explicit, but it will be there, and the first approximately half of this episode is pretty tame, so... If you think you might uh want to bail, if perhaps younger listeners are are listening as well, then uh, you'll still be able to get uh, a sense of where some <laughs> of the inspirations for Wonder Woman came from from the first half of the show. Uh, and also, to be clear, this is not a history of Wonder Woman. We're not going to spend a ton of time talking about the early issues and the many, many different origin stories she has had, and all of that. It is a lot more about. Uh, Dr. Marston and how his life sort of became subsumed in this comic book character.
0: Yeah. So William Moulton Marston was born in Massachusetts on May 9th of 1893. And while we usually spend a bit of time talking about a person's early life, his adulthood is really what's connected to what we're talking about today. So this time around, we're going to skip most of that early who his parents were, etc. And we're going right to 1911, which was his freshman year at Harvard. And the only subject he really liked that first year was philosophy. And at that time, a lot of people considered psychology to be a branch of philosophy.
1: Marston's philosophy professor, George Herbert Palmer, was outspoken in his view that women and men were equal. He was also the faculty sponsor for the Harvard Men's League for Women's Suffrage, which uh, had invited Emmeline Pankhurst to speak on campus in November of 1911. So that would have been the November of Marston's first year of college, this was an event that would have a long-lasting influence on Marston's life and work.
0: Pankhurst was the founder of Britain's Women's Social and Political Union, the nation's most militant women's rights organization. It was Pankhurst's organization that reclaimed the derogatory nickname Suffragette and wore it with pride when other more moderate organizations preferred Suffragist. By the 19-teens, the suffragettes' activism included breaking windows, vandalism, and arson, with their subsequent arrests infamously followed by hunger strikes and force feedings.
1: That is, of course, not at all a thorough history of the suffragettes, but a big part of the movement and its iconography was the use of chains. This was really co-opted from the earlier abolition movement. Suffragettes framed their movement as seeking a liberation from bondage, and used images of chains in their pamphlets and other printed material. They also physically chained themselves to fences and other barriers as part of their protests.
0: When invited to Harvard in 1911, Pankhurst was banned from actually speaking on the Harvard campus. At that time, Harvard was an all-male university, and it did not allow women to speak on campus. The administration decided not to make an exception for Pankhurst, even though it had made an exception for another woman in the same lecture series, provided the lecture was closed to anyone from off campus.
1: According to the New York Times, Pankhurst's invitation caused an, quote, almost unprecedented stir. The student body divided into subs who supported Pankhurst's invitation and antis who did not, and petitions circulated on both sides. In the end, because she had been barred from speaking on campus, the event was held off campus, with way more people trying to get into the lecture hall than would actually fit. Students from both Harvard and from Radcliffe College, which was the women's college that started out as Harvard Annex, were all in the audience, and Marston was caught up in all of this.
0: While at Harvard, Marston studied under Hugo Munsterberg in Harvard's Experimental Psychology Lab. Munsterberg was a controversial figure. He was recruited from Germany specifically to head up the lab, and he maintained loyalty to Germany even in the years leading into World War I. Unlike Marston's psychology professor, Munsterberg was against both the feminist movement and the suffrage movement. He thought women should have access to education, but not to graduate studies, which he thought they were not suited for.
1: Munsterberg believed in psychological parallelism, or the idea that parallel processes are always going on in both the body and the mind. They uh, run parallel to or complement each other. He did a lot of work in applied psychology as well, and he was conducting experiments on whether it was possible to detect deception through speech and heart rate as well as skin temperature.
0: While he did not at all agree with Munsterberg's thoughts about women, Marston was fascinated with potential connections between the mind and body and whether it was possible to use physical responses to detect deception. Around 1913, his childhood sweetheart, Sadie Elizabeth Holloway, who he had known since eighth grade, told him that she noticed her blood pressure rose when she was upset.
1: Holloway's observation and Munsterberg's prior work became the foundation for the Marston Deception Test, a lie detector that predicted whether someone was being truthful based on their systolic blood pressure. In his first experiment with it, he used stories actually written by Holloway that described a fictitious crime that a friend had committed. Participants had to give mock court testimony about their friend, either by lying or telling the truth. A mock jury offered an opinion on whether uh, this Subject was being truthful, which and then that result was compared to the blood pressure reading. The lie detector was right 96% of the time, while the mock jury was only right about half the time.
0: Marston got his bachelor's degree from Harvard in 1915, and that September, he and Holloway, who graduated from Mount Holyoke that year, were married. Although she took his last name, she didn't particularly want to, and she also did not want to be called Betty, which Marston insisted on calling her. We're calling her Holloway in this episode for those reasons as well as for clarity. Yeah, this
1: episode would get really confusing if if we called them both Marston. Over the strenuous objections of her father, when Marston went on to pursue a law degree from Harvard, Holloway did the same thing from Boston University. She performed a lot better than he did academically, and they both graduated in 1918. While he was in law school, Marston kept up with his research into deception, offering up the use of his lie detector in criminal investigations and unsuccessfully to the FBI, the Office of Military Intelligence, and the Departments of War and Justice, among many others. He was really a proponent for his lie detector. In
0: 1918, during the U.S. involvement in World War I, Marston became a second lieutenant, and he served at the U.S. Army School of Military Psychology. After the end of the war, he returned to school again, earning a Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard in 1921. His Ph.D. dissertation was Systolic Blood Pressure Symptoms of Deception and Constituent Mental States. Holloway mirrored his classes at Radcliffe, although graduate degrees were not conferred to women.
1: Yeah, the way that Radcliffe worked at that time was that it was basically for women and it was taught with essentially identical lectures and all from Harvard faculty. Uh, but the women weren't really considered to be Harvard students exactly. And in this case, uh, the, the advanced work that she was doing did not result in her getting a Ph.D. along with him.
0: You can do all the work, but you don't get the title. (laughs) She
1: said something very similar to that. Uh, And from there, Marston entered academia. But Holloway, in spite of her degrees, which she did have before this whole Radcliffe course of study, and her excellent academic performance, had trouble finding a job. She did continue to assist him with his research, which we are going to talk about some more after a quick sponsor break.
0: Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip.
1: You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuffy Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too.
0: So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
1: After finishing his Ph.D. in psychology, William Moulton Marston took a job as a professor at American University in Washington, D.C., where he was the chair of the psychology department. It's a pretty prestigious position to get in your first job after grad school. For Holloway's part, she found a job researching answers to readers' questions for a syndicated newspaper column.
0: Marston also attempted to have the lie detector evidence introduced into the murder trial of James Alfonso Fry. During an interrogation, Fry had confessed, but later he said that he had been pressured into doing so. Marston's aim was to use his lie detector to prove that Fry's original confession had been false. Two of Marston's students were also Fry's legal counsel, and they didn't put much effort into his case, planning to rest it all on Marston's expert testimony. But the judge would not allow Marston's testimony, and Fry was convicted.
1: Fry really got the worst of this deal because a series of appeals were focused pretty much exclusively on this whole lie detector testimony, and they led to Fry versus United States, which was heard in the D.C. Circuit Court. This case established what became known as the Fry Standard, basically the idea that for scientific evidence to be introduced in court, uh, it had to rely on generally accepted concepts in the relevant field. It could not, for example, rely on something that was unproven or something that was considered to be a fringe belief, like Marston's lie detector was. The Fry Standard stayed on the books for a long time. It's still in use in some states, although at this point it's mostly been replaced
0: by other laws. Marston's job at American University was short-lived. After a completely different business enterprise we haven't even gotten into here failed, his business associates in that enterprise accused him of fraud. And that case never came to trial, but the suspicion around it was enough to cost Marston his job. In
1: 1925, he started working in the psychology department at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, which is where he met Olive Byrne. She had been born in February 1904, delivered by her mother's sister, Margaret Sanger. Sanger and Olive's mother, Ethel, had started the United States' first contraceptive clinic together in 1916, and it was the foundation for what would become Planned Parenthood. When Ethel Byrne was arrested for running this clinic, she went on a hunger strike that was really threatening her life, and Sanger, without her consent, negotiated a deal with the governor that she would be pardoned if she never participated in the birth control movement again. So all of that happened after Olive Byrne's birth, but before uh, she
0: started attending Tufts. And Byrne was a student at Jackson Women's College at Tufts University. Marston was her professor in experimental psychology. Sadie Elizabeth Holloway had not moved to Massachusetts with him, she had taken a job as a managing editor of a psychology journal in New York.
1: At this point, Marston had largely stopped his study of law. The failure of Fry versus United States really seemed to put a damper on his enthusiasm for that, and he had started focusing on the psychophysiology of emotions, or the connections between the mind and the responses in the body as they related to emotions. He and many others in the field of psychology in the 1920s was extremely interested in studying sex as well and in studying sex differences between men and women. And this is where today's episode is going to turn into more adult territory.
0: So in particular, Marston was very interested in bondage, dominance, and submission. He proposed a study in which they could examine how women responded to being tied up and how other women would respond to striking the ones who were bound. To that end, Byrne took him to a sorority hazing ritual in which freshmen pledges dressed like babies and were led, blindfolded with their hands bound, while upperclassmen ordered them around and sophomore sorority sisters hit them with sticks. And then they interviewed participants who reported, quote, excited pleasantness.
1: Marston and Byrne became involved sometime in 1925, and he introduced her to his wife on Byrne's graduation day in 1926. Sometime around then is also when Marston left Tufts. It's entirely possible that he was asked to leave based on everything we have just said in the last few sentences. Soon after, Marston told Holloway that he wanted Byrne to move in with them, and that if she didn't allow it, he would leave her.
0: Articles about whether women can, quote, have it all, with all meaning both children and a career, may seem like a recent phenomenon, but they were already being written in 1926. And Holloway had found herself caught in that question. She wanted children, but she had always, long before marrying Marston, been ambitious and career-oriented. So she came to the decision that was, at the time, pretty unconventional illegal and would have been completely scandalous if anyone had found out about it. Byrne could live with them if she raised the children, and that would leave Holloway free to focus on her career.
1: They made up a cover story that Byrne was a relative who had been previously married, but her husband had died. The two children that Byrne had with Marston were really, according to their cover story, her late husband's children and not Marston's.
0: I have so many timeline questions about how that works. Like, that works for one baby? is weird. The second baby, like, um, <laughs> wait a minute. O- already had a child from the deceased husband. Anyway, uh Holloway and Byrne each had two children with Marston between 1928 and 1933. And they didn't even tell Byrne's children who their father was until much, much later in their lives. Byrne had hoped to get a Ph.D. and got as far as a master's before dropping out of school to take care of the first of these four children, which Holloway gave birth to in 1928, while working at Encyclopedia Britannica and staying at her job as long as possible before delivering.
1: This was not really typical for middle-class white women (laughs) in the 20s (laughs) at all. Marston's career really started to flounder in the late 1920s and into the 1930s. He had been fired as the chair of the psychology department at American University, and then he either quit or was asked to leave his assistant professorship at Tufts. He then became a lecturer at Columbia after that, and that's really the opposite of the trajectory that a career in academia is supposed to follow.
0: He was really struggling to make his way in the world of academic psychology. After all his experimental work, he developed and published a number of theories about human emotions and physical responses to them. He theorized that psychology and neurology had complementary counterparts. Where neurology had neurons or nerve cells, psychology had the theoretical structure of psychons. The brain could be explained through neurons and the mind could be explained through psychons.
1: He also proposed a new framework to understand human emotions. Rather than emotions like fear and anger, he proposed four primary emotional responses, which were dominance, compliance, submission, and inducement. He published two books exploring his theoretical framework. There was Emotions of Normal People, which came out in 1928, and Integrative Psychology, a study of unit response, which came out in 1931, This interplay between dominance and submission underpinned a lot of these theories, and emotions of normal people also had a lot in it that was devoted to reassuring people that taboo sexual proclivities were really completely normal. Although he often included Byrne and Holloway in his acknowledgments or his thanks in his books, in some cases one or both of them had come closer to co-writing the book, but wasn't listed as an author.
0: And he kept using his lie detector, not so much to test deception anymore, but to study emotional responses. In 1928, he used it to study the question of whether women with different hair color had different emotional responses. I don't know why I love that so much, but I sure do. It's because it's hilarious. It's very <laughs> it's very funny. Uh, a second series of tests examined what provoked an emotional response, with the subjects watching movies while hooked up to the machine. The conclusion, according to the New York Times, was, quote, that brunettes enjoyed the thrill of pursuit, while blondes preferred the more passive enjoyment of being kissed.
1: A lot of this probably sounds at (laughs) best specious. (laughs) And also pretty funny. Uh, But it did wind up leading to more work in the field of pop psychology, which we're going to talk about after another quick sponsor break.
0: Hi everyone, it's Katie Couric. I've got a ton of questions about this crazy time we're living in, and I know you probably do too. On the new season of my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, I sit down with people at the center of the issue shaping the world around us, like the impact meat has on our health and on the environment, why the maternal mortality rate in the United States is so high, and how the 2020 presidential candidates plan to improve the lives of everyday americans i hope you'll join me for these fascinating conversations on the second season of next question subscribe and listen every thursday on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows
1: In 1928, Universal Studios posted an advertisement that they were seeking a psychologist to help them figure out how audiences would respond to their movies, and that psychologist wound up being William Molden Marston. He was hired as the director of the studio's Public Service Bureau, and once again, this job did not last very long. the passage of the Hays Code, which prohibited, quote, immoral content in films shifted the types of films that the industry could make and then consequently what kind of responses they needed to measure. They also found a more sophisticated lie detector, the Polygraph, which was developed by John Larson and Leonard Keeler, and decided to use
0: that to evaluate films instead. After that, Marston tried to co-found a production company called Equitable Pictures with the goal of making feminist films. And he had actually made a film before in his undergraduate days. That was how he made enough money to buy Holloway's engagement ring. However, Equitable Pictures folded just before the start of the Great Depression in 1929. His career
1: hadn't exactly been stable up to this point, and Marson wound up uh, without steady employment for a lot of the 1930s. For the most part, Holloway really supported the whole family. Although much about their family was still a secret, some people in academia had figured out something was going on in Marston's household that was not conventional, and that torpedoed some of his academic prospects. Another woman named Marjorie Wilkes-Huntley also lived with them on and off through these decades.
0: Marston wrote a book called The Lie Detector Test, which came out in 1938. And this was another case in which Byrne was essentially a co-writer. To promote his book, he started doing publicity stunts. There was a love detector in which pretty ladies were kissed while hooked up to it. In 1939, he did a Gillette razor blade ad in which people shaved with Gillette blades and then other blades and then answered questions about the experience while they were hooked up to the detector.
1: Uh, The results of this were apparently padded and a second larger study was conducted under the supervision of Detroit police Uh, in that study the results came down 50-50 in terms of Gillette versus other Blades and then Marston allegedly bribed someone to say it was 100% in favor of Gillette which that person declined to do an FBI memo about this whole deal includes a handwritten note on it that says quote I always thought this fellow Marston was a phony, and this proves
0: it. The reason that there was an FBI memo about it at all was that Marston's publisher had sent a copy of the lie detector test to J. Edgar Hoover when it was published, hoping for an endorsement. Instead, the FBI started a file. And the FBI's assessment of the book was that it was, quote, extremely egotistical and mostly seemed to exist to establish the fact that Marston had invented the lie detector. The memo concludes by summarizing the book's conjecture that having a deception pointed out will cause the subject to admit his falsehood, then always tell the truth in the future, which, quote, exemplifies the same egotistical, ridiculous strain in which the book was written.
1: Nevertheless, all this publicity landed Marston a lot of other pop psychology gigs. He had articles published in Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, Esquire, and Ladies Home Journal He wrote inspirational psychology and self-help books with names like You Can Be Popular and March On, Facing Life with Courage.
0: He also wrote about women, how, in his view, women were largely superior to men. He gave an interview with the New York Times in 1937 in which he said the United States was within a century of, quote, the beginning of a sort of Amazonian matriarchy. And in 500 years, the nation would see a, quote, definite battle for sex supremacy. And in a thousand years, he believed women would rule the nation, both politically and economically.
1: Meanwhile, Olive Byrne had gotten a job writing for Family Circle magazine, and in her article she would visit, in air quotes, famed psychologist Dr. William Moulton Marston, who she pretended to know only in this professional capacity, having in fact met him in order to interview him for one of these articles. She would seek out his professional opinion on child behavior, like, for example, what to do about a child who was lying all the time. And in one of these articles, the question was along the lines of, I've heard comic books might be dangerous for children. Are they? That was not... That's the
0: sum up of the article's question. (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna. Stop giggling. Comic books, at this point, had a terrible reputation. Although the United States hadn't yet become involved, World War II was underway, and storylines were becoming increasingly violent. The Chicago Daily News called comics, quote, sex horror serials. Superman had just debuted in 1938, and Batman in 1939, and they weren't exactly being written as wholesome role models. Superman came off as a fascist, and Batman was shooting people.
1: So in her guise of a concerned parent, Olive Byrne visited famous psychologist William Moulton Marston to ask if comic books were harmful. And his position was that they were for the most part just harmless wish fulfillment. People read them because they knew that the heroine was going to be rescued by the hero at the last moment. She wasn't in any real danger. And in most cases, no harm came to her on the page. So his opinion, like people weren't even being taught to enjoy violence because they were always saved from the violence.
0: This article caught the attention of Maxwell Charles Gaines of Detective Comics, later known of course as DC Comics. He hired Marston in 1940 because he wanted Marston's help defending him from critics and turning comics' reputation around.
1: In Marston's assessment, the root problem of comic books was their, quote, blood-curdling masculinity. Quote, the obvious remedy, he wrote, was, quote, to create a feminine character with all the strength of a Superman plus all the allure of a good and beautiful woman. Marston wanted to provide a role model for girls and to introduce boys to a feminist hero. And at one point he said, quote, frankly, Wonder Woman is psychological propaganda for the type of woman who I believe should rule the world.
0: Gaines agreed to publish such a comic if Marston wrote it. He turned in his first draft, originally titled Suprema, the Wonder Woman, in 1941.
1: And here's where Wonder Woman became a synthesis of all these things we've been talking about for this entire episode. We talked at the top of the show about how the suffragettes had used metaphors and depictions of chains and bondage, picked up, as we said, from the uh, abolition movement. That same idea and those same images were picked up by the greater feminist movement as well. Marston, an advocate for both of these movements, put that same imagery into Wonder Woman. According to his writing, if Wonder Woman were chained up by a man, she would lose her power. And she was, in an overwhelming number of the early comics, chained up by men. She also had a golden lasso that would compel people to tell the truth like the lie detector that Marston had spent so much of his career trying to convince people was genuine, and she came from an island inhabited only by women, depicted in many ways as superior to men, and was framed in a way that was
0: explicitly feminist. Another aspect came from Marston's personal life. Wonder Woman's wide bracelets were patterned after those worn by Olive Byrne instead of a wedding ring. And there are a lot of moments in Marston's Wonder Woman stories that clearly parallel his life. Like, a lot, a lot. Uh, A villain named Dr. Psycho was probably inspired by Hugo Munsterberg. The gates at Holiday College look a lot like the gates at Harvard. Check out Jill Lepore's The Secret History of Wonder Woman if that sounds interesting, because there is a lot more to delve into there that is not really part of this.
1: So much. Uh, And that book also has a lot more of the history of Wonder Woman's various incarnations that we're not really going to get into here. It's a really good book. Uh, I read it as part of the research for the show. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Written by Marston and drawn by H.G. Peter, Wonder Woman debuted in All-Star Comics number 8 in the fall of 1941, and she was immediately immensely popular. With sales of her titles popping half a
0: million copies by the third issue. She also drew a lot of controversy. She really wasn't wearing a lot of clothes, and she got tied up. A lot. Uh, Josette Frank of the Child Study Association called it full of sex antagonisms and perversions, to which Marston replied, quote, Frankly, I don't know what she means. Probably my basic idea of women fighting male dominance, cruelty, savagery, and war-making with love control backed by force, is what she means by sex antagonisms.
1: But whatever Marsden's denials, those so-called sex antagonisms and perversions were really obvious in the minds of some of the critics. Because Wonder Woman was from an island populated only by women, and because of the way those women sometimes interacted with each other, people alleged that the comic was promoting lesbianism which at the time was widely considered to be immoral and also in most places was illegal. An infantry soldier wrote to Marston in 1943, basically spelling out that he personally was into sexual bondage and wondering if Marston was too because of how he was depicting Wonder Woman. That is a complicated question we cannot answer in the scope of this podcast because the only people alive to ask are their children, and honestly, how much do most children know about their parents' sexual behavior? Regardless, though, a meeting that followed led to a decision to cut down the depictions of Wonder Woman tied up by between 50 and 75%.
0: Marston did not agree with the criticism that Wonder Woman was promoting sexual bondage or torture. In his words, quote, "'Wonder Woman breaks the bonds of those who are slaves to evil masters.'" but she doesn't leave the freed ones free to assert their own egos in uncontrolled self-gratification. Wonder Woman binds the victims again in love chains. That is, she makes them submit to a loving superior, a beneficent mistress or master who in every case represents God or goodness or Aphrodite, goddess of love and beauty. Freedom usually goes through a stage, as in progressive education, where it becomes detrimental through lack of discipline. This just a side note that bondage and
1: torture are definitely not the same thing, but a lot of the criticisms of Wonder Woman conflated that all together. At first, it was kept secret that famed psychologist William Moulton Marston was writing Wonder Woman. The first issues were published under the name Charles Moulton instead, but All-American Comics issued a press release in the summer of 1942 announcing that he was the creator and author His polyamorous home life and the fact that Olive Byrne and Sadie Holloway had both contributed to Wonder Woman in a meaningful way were kept secret. As examples, we already talked about Byrne's bracelets as the inspiration for Wonder Woman's wrist cuffs. Holloway, who had studied Greek in college and was a huge admirer of Sappho, supplied advice uh, on how Wonder Woman's interjections shouldn't be along the lines of Vulcan's hammer. They should be more about women, like Suffering Sappho.
0: Wonder Woman was nationally syndicated in newspapers in 1944.
1: Marston died on May 2, 1947, at the age of 53 of cancer. Holloway advocated for her following him as Wonder Woman's writer. Instead, Robert Kaniger followed, and he made Wonder Woman, instead of being a superhero, into a model movie star, a babysitter. Uh, He also replaced Wonder Women of History, which was a feature that had been part of Wonder Woman comics that talked about, as the name suggests, amazing women from the historical past. He replaced that feature with one that was about weddings.
0: Since her introduction in 1941, Wonder Woman has become one of the longest-running comic book characters in history. She is essentially the only female character from the early days of mass-produced comics to survive until the present she's become an icon, both as a character and as a feminist symbol.
1: The feminist publication Ms. Magazine put Wonder Woman on the cover for its first regular issue. Technically, there was a preview issue with a different cover that came out in the spring of 1972. And that first full issue with Wonder Woman came out in July. The cover read Wonder Woman for President and Peace and Justice in 72. Wonder Woman was also the U.N.'s Honorary Ambassador for the Empowerment of Women
0: and Girls in a controversial move that lasted for two months in 2016. Olive Byrne died in 1990, and Elizabeth Holloway Marston died in 1993. They had continued to live together for 43 years after Marston's death.
1: They, to me, are one of the most interesting pieces of this whole story, because when Marston came to Holloway and was like, hey...
0: Here's here's, Uh, an ultimatum.
1: (laughs) Here's here's an ultimatum in which my student is going to move in with us. Like, that's definitely presented as an ultimatum, and most people who describe that situation, like, describe it as something that was definitely like, you're going to do this, or I'm going to leave, which is, uh, most folks I know in the polyamory community would not agree that that is a healthy way to approach a relationship. But they really like after he died, they continued to be together, and essentially until one of thems last year's like the it was a death to u s part situation with the two of them as well as with the two of them with him involved in the triangle, which to me is really interesting,
0: yeah, I feel like uh it would be great if one day we get some secret journal that one of them had kept where we really get more in depth of how their whole dynamic amongst the three of them worked yeah. having been founded in that way that is not ideal normally for yeah. f- like how did it kind of progress to the point that that they did want to stay together for another 43 years without him
1: yeah well and uh Jill Lapore when she was researching her book on the secret history of Wonder Woman she inter- she interviewed their three surviving children and the spouse of the fourth of their children She talked to all of them and she got access to all these family papers. Um, And there was there was a lot of really candid discussion. But then there was also like some stuff that the kids were like, yeah, we did not really we didn't know that that he was our father until way later. Uh, So like there's there's a lot of stuff that will probably always be unanswered, some of which because like, how much do we really need to know about what they were doing? Right. Uh, And then some of it, you know. Some of it still continues to be fascinating.
0: Yeah, when I say that, please know I'm not looking for like a seedy tell all. I'm really curious about the psychology of how the three of them, again, having founded this relationship on an ultimatum, how that evolved into something that was clearly much more than that and not, and seemed, I mean, again, we're not in it, so we don't know, but seemed like it must have been healthy for them to some degree. Yeah. So, well, just and and Byrne and
1: Holloway both were very unconventional for women in their time. Like, they both had way more education than women typically did. Um, a lot of Holloway's uh, focus, like, she really was focused on um, literature and law. And she was really into being educated and pursuing a career. And, you know, in their class, that like, that was not really common. Yeah. Uh, And then with Olive Byrne, a lot of like her gender presentation in college was very androgynous and she was really interested in pursuing a Ph.D. Like they both were outside of the norm for women uh, a lot. So I I think all of them are uh, really interesting as people and as examples of like a relationship that was not within the norms of society. Like in some circles, this would still be scandalous today, but at the time it was been really scandalous and yeah. career ending
0: for all three of them. Do you have some career-ending listener mail? I hope not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh before
1: we get into the listener mail, I just wanted to say really quickly, Holly and I, you are doing a live show in Seneca Falls. Yeah. July 16th, which is a Sunday, at an yeah. event called Convention Days. Uh, you can find more information about that on, uh, our website and we've been talking about on our social media. Uh, yeah. we don't want it to be a surprise to listeners that we will be out there. We are looking forward to it. So again, that's, uh, July 16th, 2017 in Seneca Falls, New York. It's a very pretty time of year out in the Finger Lakes. Uh, and I do have some listener mail. I'm approaching our listener mail a little bit differently today, uh, in our Ladies of Thangothlin episode. Uh, We talked about the idea of the Boston marriage and how I had not been able to figure out exactly when that term came into use. Yeah, Um, And we got email from Rebecca, Alicia, and Courtney about Boston marriage. Um, So thank you, all three of you, for sending email about Boston marriage. I wanted to both clarify what my question was and also answer it, which I'm really excited about. I went down a deep rabbit hole about Boston marriage. So when researching that episode I was already familiar with the term Boston marriage and that it was uh used to describe women having a relation a, a relationship I'm using that in, in its broad sense like it, it's it's entirely likely that in some cases these were like romantic partnerships but in some cases they were more like practical roommate situations but they were women making a life together uh in a way that was public people knew about it um And didn't, you know, they didn't have a male partner, which at the time was not particularly typical. What was totally unclear to me was when people actually started using this term, because according to Merriam-Webster, its first use was in 1980. And so I was, yeah, and it's not in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is my go-to location to find out when words in English arrived. Right. Uh, So in the time leading up to that episode, I was not able to figure out whether this was a term that was in use at the time that it's uh, used to describe or whether it was like a modern word that was coined way more recently. I have now answered that question. Uh, The first known use of the term Boston marriage in writing was published in a letter to the editor of The Open Court, which was a journal printed in Chicago Uh, This was printed on January 5th of 1893, and it was by Edna D. Cheney. And she was writing in response to a legal dust-up in which two women had had made a home together, and one of the women's father was trying to pursue legal action over it. Um, And she wrote... This seems very strange to one who for many years has been accustomed to the existence of ties between women so intimate and persistent that they are fully recognized by their friends and of late have acquired, if not a local habitation, at least a name, for they have been christened Boston marriages. This institution deserves to be recognized as a really valuable one for women in our present state of civilization. With the great number of women in our state... in excess of the men, and with the present independence of women, which renders marriage merely for a home no longer acceptable, the proportion of those who can enter into that relation is diminished, and the glorious spellings of old maids must find some substitute for the joys of family life. These relations, so far as I have known, and I have known many of them, are not usually planned for convenience or economy, but out of a constantly increasing attachment favored by circumstances which make such a marriage the best refuge against the solitude of growing age. And then later on in her letter, she says, I do not propose that we should formally adopt the Boston marriage into our civil code and celebrate it with ceremonies and festivities for simplicity and privacy, especially become it but I do think it is good to think of it with respect and welcome it as one of the helps to human welfare and not let any jealous feelings mar the happiness of those concerned in it. So that, not from 1980 at all, was printed in 1893. I'm glad to know that now. yeah, Uh, I have no idea why Merriam-Webster thinks it is such, such a more recent word than it actually is. Uh, thanks to the folks who wrote in with various different tidbits about Boston marriage. If you would like to write to us, uh, we are at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at Missin History. Our Tumblr is com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash miss in history and also Instagram at missed history. You can come to our parent company's website at HowStuffWorks.com. You will find all kinds of information, including some stuff about Wonder Woman. (laughs) Uh, And you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You will find show notes for episodes, all the episodes Holly and I have done together. Those show notes are now on the same page as the podcast player for pretty much everything that's come out after late January of 2017. Uh, Old ones are on their own separate page. And we also have an archive of every episode ever. It is searchable. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or mythsinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The Only Way is Through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level.
0: Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood.
1: The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way Is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The future is closer than you think. And it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news, 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future. This Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.